Now, what would be the odds that that was happening again, that that wasn't a new report? Was that a new report or an old report? That's what I'm asking. Is it a new report or an old report? Is that a new report? Well, we don't know. When a seasoned sports fan teams up with a millennial, opinions may vary, but the debates assuredly won't disappoint. Check your sources. It's New Report, Old Report. Here's your hosts, John Lund and Al Renato. Well, Al, another exciting week in athletics. We get closer and closer to March Madness and the NCAA tournament. Nothing circles the wagons quite like the National Football League. And for once, an exciting moment in Lakers basketball to be able to chat about. But we are helped to be able to chat with one David Shepard, now friend of the show, friend of mine from some late nights of Sirius XM's Nightcap and NBA radio postgame shows. He of CBS Sports Radio, Sirius XM, NBA radio. No guests, just us. Love it. David, it's great to hear from you. Thanks for hopping on with us. We appreciate it, man. Well, John Lund and Al from White Plains, it is fantastic to be with you both. I'm fans of you both, friends of you both, so thank you so much for having me. Always open to having friends and friends join us, Al, right? <laughs> David is as big an NBA aficionado as there is. Uh, we've got him here post-All-Star break because we were off last week. Uh, we'll discuss the problems with the All-Star game and a lot of other things as we go down the stretch of the NBA season uh, with really uh, you know, plans up for grab. Uh, jockeying for playoff positions in the top eight, uh, up for grab along with those two plans. And some questions that we have for him regarding the structuring of, you know, the league itself and, uh, you know, the 65 game rule for awards, uh, et cetera, all of which we're going to get into. You know, David, obviously, I want to thank you for climbing aboard. It's great to have you with us. Um, The first thing I really want to get to is – where exactly right now do you think the league is in terms of popularity slash, uh, I don't want to say quality of play because the athleticism is at a, a level unlike anything we've ever seen and I'm the old man at the room. But just in terms of popularity of the league, and I'm not talking about the NBA fanatic. I'm talking about the general populist sports fan because a lot of people seemingly are turned off by some of the attitudes of the players, by uh, you know players sitting out in the fame, you know load management. Where, since you follow it so closely and you talk to so many, where do you believe the league is at right now vis-a-vis the sports fan in general, not just the the NBA basketball fanatic? Sure. Well, Al, it's a, it's a very good question. I, I'm a hardcore NBA fan. Um, this is not an indictment of Adam Silver, who is one of, if not the best commissioner of any professional sport in my lifetime, at least when it comes to North America. Um, he has done a wonderful job at being progressive, at, at being two steps ahead of everything, his relationship with the player. So I, w- I want to be very clear about that. It's not from a leadership perspective. It's from a player perspective. You know, I, I, I do a show at least once a week on CBS Sports Radio, oftentimes two or three times a week. And I can tell you, 
unequivocally that the majority of calls that I still take in the month of February going on March at this point is 90% football. And that tells you how big football is and how much it reigns in this country compared to the NBA. I think the All-Star game is very symbolic of how a lot of people feel. And I'm talking about the casual fan. I'm not talking about the diehards like Al and myself and, and John Lund to some extent. But when you look at the All-Star game, it's very evident and clear. Today's players don't care nearly as much as the guys in yesteryear from the 80s and the 90s. It's not, it's not even close. Those games were competitive. I even go back to that 2002 All-Star game, and I believe it was 2002, when Steph and AI were, were leading, and not obviously the artificial intelligence that we all so much talk about these days, but more like the nickname Allen Iverson. I remember the time when those guys were going back and forth with the West and down the stretch. That game was competitive, man. And they had pride, and they cared about who won. And they really not only put on a show, but they played the game the right way. And fans could appreciate that. Fans could appreciate Larry. Fans could appreciate Magic. I don't know if there's a great appreciation from a casual fan for today's NBA basketball player. I don't, I don't think that exists. I think the Kobe's of the world, the MJ's of the world, the guys that are willing to play 75 games a year, the guys that understood that every fan plays top dollar, or at least most of them, to get in an arena and see them for an opportunity of a lifetime. And half the time, you don't even know if they're going to play. And Adam Silver, I give him credit for having these, you know, 65 game, you know, institution and the regulation that dictates that you win certain awards. And I think that's a, a great idea. But the reality is these guys don't really care about regular season awards anymore. They just care about their brand. They care about their social media presence. And it obviously raises ugly head when it comes to drawing in the casual fan in terms of, uh, you know, liking professional basketball in the States. Do you think, because here's one thing that just, I, I can't wrap my arms around. Yeah. Every time I watch an NBA game, no matter where it is. Right. It, these arenas are packed. And these tickets are not cheap. No. So <laughs> is it just the fact that, you know, the casual NBA fan makes up such a tiny portion of the fan base? And we're talking about arenas that hold 18, 20, 22,000 versus NFL stadiums that hold, you know, 65 you know, to a hundred, depending on where you are, if you're going to Dallas, sure. because, you know, we've got our, our NBA lifers, our, our guys who love basketball and gals who love basketball, and we're going to watch and we're going to admire. But at the same time, we're disgusted with what we saw, you know, during the All-Star game. Yeah. We're turned off. We're taken aback. We can barely watch it. And all we can do is be critical of what we're watching and thinking back to the days of the old report when things were what, what, what they should be now. All right. So is it just that, you know, that there are enough in the major cities to fill these arenas and so many others are being turned off by the attitude of the bulk of today's NBA players? Well, I mean, you, you witnessed what happened on, on Wednesday between LeBron and the Clippers in the fourth quarter, right? Indeed. So there's there are plenty of fans that still very much follow every single step that LeBron takes. Same can be said about Steph Curry, Giannis Antetokounmpo. It, it's a star league. It always has been. It, it, it's amplified in the 2020s. Um, it's the biggest star league in North American professional sports, bar none. So you're always going to have a big following. But compared to the NFL, it's night and day. 
we're talking about 40, 50, 60 million people tuning in to watch these games compared to 10, 15 when it comes to the NBA. Now, the NBA, in terms of gate revenue, in terms of people showing up and putting their fannies in the seats, that's going to be there. It's going to be there for MSG. It's going to be there for Crypto.com Arena because they're such strong brands. But in terms of the kind of numbers that football does, they bring in a lot of, a lot of casual fans. Now, listen, we can go down to Taylor Swift rabbit hole if we want to. But even before Taylor Swift, they were still averaging 50, 60 million viewers when it comes to national televised games. The NBA is not doing that. And by the way, and you're not asking me this, Al, but I, I, I will take issue with this. The analysts who cover this game, and I'm, I'm speaking to guys like Charles Barkley and Shaq, I don't think it helps that this is the only sport where the analysts clown on the star athletes of their respective sport today. They don't do that in the NFL. You don't see Boomer Esiason doing that. You know what I mean? You don't see, I know JJ watched relatively new to the game, you don't see him doing that, right? You don't see Chris Collinsworth doing that. Every TNT broadcast I tune into, Shaq and Charles got some some flack to say about some NBA star, and, and I don't think that I don't think that helps the sport. I I don't think that does the NBA casual fans I, any favors. I, I I don't disagree with you, but I, I think the problem there is that again, the way the game has changed versus the way the players' attitudes have changed. In the NFL, guys don't sit out. In the NFL, guys are warriors. They were then, they are now. The game has changed because a lot of the rules have changed to protect the players. And you will hear some of the players criticize that, that the former players, and that they don't like some of that, that the game is getting soft, that you know too much protection of the quarterback, where is a guy supposed to tackle somebody? That's not an attack on the players. That's an attack on the rules. These guys are still going out there, and they are deemed by their cohorts by the guys who used to play the game as modern day warriors just like they were because they know what they're putting out there physically and what they're risking whereas the barclays and the shacks and the kenny smiths and others see guys playing 55 games when those guys were out there playing every game they could and to try and win every game and to be honored to go to the all-star game and play hard in the all-star game and want to win so i think david in terms of what you're talking about with Shaq and what you're talking about with, with Sir Charles is more of their, I don't want to say antagonism, but more of their negative attitude towards the way the guys are not playing the game today and not competing or caring about the all-star game uh, when they took so much pride in it versus the NFL, the guys that are, Giving us the analysis, the guys doing the pre and post, the former players that you just talked about, they're not antagonizing in any way, shape, or form their modern-day players, their modern-day warriors, because they see them playing the same game that they played in terms of putting their literally life on the line when they go out there. They'll be critical of the rules and the changes in the game and how the game may have gotten, I don't want to use the term softer, because you know the NFL is, is a war zone. But right. in terms of the rules protecting the players more, a lot of former players and even a lot of current players don't like a lot of the changes. They think that they've taken away too much of their physicality in the game. And that's what you may see the NFL pre- and post-game guys and former players criticizing. But they're not criticizing the players because they see them playing with the same approach that they played. 
maybe within a different set of rules, but the same approach, the same attitude, the same dedication, the same effort, the same risk. Whereas Shaq and Charles and Kenny and their brethren are watching guys take nights off and they're not playing back to backs and they have no desire to play in the all-star game. Or if they do have desire to go, they show that they have no desire to play and compete. And I think you're right, but I can't blame them because I think the same thing. I think it's repulsive. The all-star game is broken. It is a disgrace. And, you know, I'm very curious to see if you have any suggestions you, John, on how it can, can it be fixed? Or is the all-star game broken beyond repair? Is it going to go the way of the Pro Bowl for, I, I guess, for similar reasons, the risk of getting hurt, right. but you know, far less of a probability of getting hurt? Sure. I mean, you know, Lund, obviously I'd love to hear what you have to say about this. I, I, I think that, I think to answer your question now, I think it's, I think it's long gone. I don't think it's ever going to get back to what it used to be. The reality is, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Larry Bird spoke to the all-star teams beforehand, as did Dr. J, about the value of competition in this particular format, correct? One in one ear and out the other. Right. Now, you have two of the ultimate ambassadors for the sport. And I, I don't care if you're born, you know, in 2001, 2002. I know guys like, you know, Bancaro, uh, like there's some of the younger guys. Obviously, LeBron knows who Dr. J and Larry Bird are. I'm sure the younger guys, the Ty, you know, Tyrese Halliburton plays in Indiana, so he better know who Larry Bird is. But I'm sure the younger guys know who Dr. J is. I'm sure they know who Larry Bird is and the type of players they were and the type of attitudes they had on the court at all times. If those guys can't get through, to these modern day players, I don't know how you're going to get through to them. And so I think it is a lost cause. I think you can have all kinds of ideas, like you play for charity. You know, I heard it might have been Donovan Mitchell this out there. You make a like a, a Rutgers Park type of environment where you have an announcer and you have a hype guy, and so it kind of gives it a feel where you know you're going mono eat mono. You're just not going to let someone else clown you in an All Star game. You're not going to let somebody else score on you. I've, I've heard all kinds of suggestions. I think it is long gone the days of playing competitive basketball, the all-star game, because guys just want to have an easy uh, cakewalk. That, that's where it has come to. And players more than ever before in the NBA, they're getting paid more and more by the year, and they're going to feel more empowered by the year. And so what makes us think, oh, yeah, that's the time they're really going to care about the fans. No, it's going the exact opposite direction. Uh, come up with something that's entertaining, like have all-stars of the past, I think that'd be really interesting. You know, I'm not, I'm not saying guys like Michael Jordan would play or magic or Larry, but if you have recently retired guys, something like the big three and you have guys four or five years removed, or maybe you have the older guys versus the younger guys, something like that. But what we're doing right now in this particular format, it's not going in the right direction and that's not going to change anytime soon. Doesn't help either when two of your best players and Luka Doncic and Nikola Jokic have been vocally saying, eh, we're not really too interested in this all-star game. Anthony Edwards <laughs> talking about shooting left-handed because he doesn't care what's going on as a, another rising star in the league. When you've got guys vocally saying before, during, and after the game that they don't care about it, that's not going right. to help the product. And I know maybe throwing money is going to be the answer, as it often is with everything in this world. 
But it almost seems like when you hear like Victor Wembanyama come out and say like he wants to win, he's competitive, he wants to do things like that. It's like maybe it's a hopeful viewpoint that he might want to carry the torch of competitiveness. And once he's in the league a couple more years, guys will rally around him like Paulo Bancaro, et cetera, where they'll want to be competitive in that game. But where it currently is now, like since the Elam rule is gone and we had that exciting defense, like after Kobe passed away, everybody wanted to ball out for at least that game and that excitement. That seems like it was 20 years ago at this point. It's just too bad that that product for that night when all of the pomp and circumstances around your sport, the highlight of everything was Steph Curry and Sabrina going after it for their three-point shooting contest. And as it should be, those are two great stars, and that was a thrilling event to see them go after it. But that's not what the NBA was looking for as their main event. The main event was the All-Star game, and unfortunately it fell flat. When you're looking around the NBA, Shep, the people that have kind of put football at least somewhat on the back burner, although the NFL combine is out and people are watching guys in underwear run up and down a 40-yard dash, don't get us wrong. They're excited for the draft, too. What are some of your major storylines that people should be interested in if they're just getting their toe re-wet for the NBA, starting with what LeBron did, beating the Clippers by himself last night in the fourth quarter? (laughs) A great way to start that off. But what are you looking at around the league as some of the bigger storylines to look out for. Oh, there's, there's, there's so many right now, you know, can the nuggets go back to back? And I know Jamal Murray is not an official all-star, but that that's an all-star in my eyes. I think we'll all three of us feel the same way. Can the nuggets go back to back? Um, they were dominant in last year's postseason. I know there's this narrative that they're not dominant 16 and four and the games you lost are all by three possessions or less. That That's pretty dominant to me. That's a better record than even what the Warriors had in the playoff run back in 2018 with KD, Steph, Clay, Draymond, et cetera. That's one storyline. Another storyline is can LeBron and AD make one final push together as a dynamic duo? Can the play of the Warriors continue to ascend with the emergence of Jonathan Kaminga with Clay Thompson coming off the bench? With Draymond Green back and seems to have his head on straight, that's definitely a storyline to look after. Can the Boston Celtics, and they're running away with the Eastern Conference right now in terms of win-loss record, but the question for Tatum and Brown has always been, can they deliver the goods when it matters most in the playoffs? That's something to look after. Can the Milwaukee Bucks figure it out with Damian Lillard, Giannis Antetokounmpo, and a new addition in Doc Rivers, can that go in the right direction? Apparently it was with Adrian Griffin, but that wasn't good enough because, oh, my God, he held guys accountable. Now, those are, those are fascinating storylines to look after. I'd say from an individual perspective, can an American win a regular season MVP award? Because it hasn't happened in a long time. I think it's a wonderful thing, by the way, that the international game has essentially taken over the NBA. But can an American, for once, win a regular season MVP in recent times? It hasn't happened. So that's that's an individual thing that I'm looking forward to. And then the question that I think is appropriate, because we're talking about the twilight years of LeBron, to some degree, Steph and KD, who's going to be the next guy? Is it Jokic? Is it Giannis? Is it Joel? But one other thing I want to focus on is how great can Victor Wembanyama be? He's already one of eight guys in NBA history to average 20 points, 10 rebounds, 
and three blocks per game in his rookie season. Now, the other guys that did it, they're all first ballot Hall of Fame big men, and they played at least three years of college. We know Victor came into the NBA as a teenager. How great can this guy be? And will his 7-4 frame and counting be able to hold up and withstand the regular season 82-game schedule? I'm fascinated to see all those things. I think you've got to answer the, first, the second question before you can answer the first question. Because his first, second question is simply, we don't know. Yeah. And, and not just the frame, the big guys in general. We see so often, the, the, especially the injuries to the, 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 quite frankly, the foot injuries. Yep. You know, Rick Smith's, his, his entire career. Yao Ming, his entire career. Uh, the unicorn in Boston. You know, constant maladies. When... The guys are that tall. They seem to have real issues uh, with their legs and most notably their feet. And I don't know if he's going to be able to hold up. Ow, ow, why, why was why was Kareem different? Kareem was 7'2". So we're only talking a matter of inches. The guy played for 20 years and he played for three years at UCLA. And I believe it was four, including his freshman year, when you couldn't play varsity at that particular time in college. How That's does his correct. body... And the, and, the, and, the, and the freshman team... Beat the reigning national champs. Right. Malden. That's not surprised. And of course, at the time, Lou Alcindor. But, but now, how do you explain Kareem, who had such durability for 20 years at 7 2? That's, that's, that's how you're the greatest big man of all time. That's how you explain it. Right. That's how you explain Wilt. All right. And him playing 48 minutes a night. That's part of being in that select group that we argue, fight, discuss all the time in terms of who's the greatest of all time, who are the top five of all time, what's your top 10? Because these are guys we are separating with a, a piece of the thinnest paper on the face of the earth. Right. There is, you know, we're talking about absolute positive greatness of all time, not just good, not just terrific, not just great, but the very greatest. So to be the very greatest, what do you have to do? You know, you have to be available. You have to be durable. You have to be able to go out every night and play and produce. And people forget. And again, when they talk about LeBron and his greatness at a later age, I always point to no matter what he's accomplished, 1985, when Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was 37, 37 years old. His rookie year was 1970. After four years at UCLA, in 1985, he went into the Boston Garden with the Lakers, and for the first time, the Lakers defeated the Celtics in six games, winning game six, in Boston, and after a thrashing in the Memorial Day Massacre, and they right. read the riot act by the great coach Pat Riley, he went crazy. And who did he do it against? He didn't do it against some second front, you know, some second Raiders. He did it against a Hall of Fame, not center, not forward, but an entire Hall of Fame front line Robert Parrish, Larry Bird, and Kevin McHale. And who was the MVP of that series? Kareem Abdul-Jabbar at age 37. And oh, by the way, went on to win two more championships in the next three years and play in three more finals in the next four years. 
That is why he is the greatest of all time, because he was not just a brilliant player. He kept himself physically fit. He was incredibly durable, and he played every night against everybody. Did he come up on the short end at times? Absolutely. Moses Malone takes him out in four. Right, uh, you know, uh, the Twin Towers in Houston take him out in the Western Conference Finals. The Celtics beat him a couple of times. Once in Milwaukee when he was in Milwaukee, and once when he was in L.A. And obviously, right. you know, he he lost in uh, you know to the Pistons. But th- th- this is the greatest center of all time. Period. And to be that, you have to play. Okay, that's what made him I'm, unique. I'm, I'm, I'm that, that's what helps make you unique and extraordinary. Right, he is he is the greatest center of all time. He is not the greatest player of all time. I'm I'm glad I'm glad you clarified that. Good. Well, when we, when we get to that discussion, it's always hard to compare. You can even compare guards and forwards. It's always hard to compare centers and anybody else. It's like saying, you know, when I make the argument, when I hear somebody say Tom Brady is the greatest football player of all time, and I said, bite your tongue if you want to argue he's the greatest quarterback of all time, but Jimmy Brown is the greatest football player of all time period end of story now bite your tongue but it, it's it, centers almost have to have their own category especially in days gone by because they weren't playing the full area of the court on offense you know centers were down in the paint whereas michael jordan or lebron uh you know or anybody else you want to mention bird magic kobe whatever the case may be they're all over the court you know, kareem was down low Wilt was down low. He's the second greatest center of all time. Those guys lived in the paint. Yes, Kareem strayed once in a while for a 15-foot skyhook or you know, a 15, 16-foot jump shot. But they didn't play on the perimeter, which makes it a totally different game. Sure. And their game defensively was in the paint, you me- 30 you feet from the basket. You mentioned football. I'm curious your perspective on this. What's more impressive? What LeBron is doing at age 39 where he's averaging 25, 26 points per game, still giving you eight assists, seven rebounds. And we've never seen anyone in year 21 look this productive. It's not even close. Versus what Tom Brady was doing at 43, 44, and 45. It's a great question. It's incredibly hard to answer. Yeah. Because um, one guy is on the court the whole time. The other guy is on the field half the time. Sure. One guy uh, is involved in every play when he's on the field, but he has a bunch of guys blocking for him. Uh, but that guy also played for f- another four years and won seven titles. Whereas this guy uh, has still only won four, and we love to count rings, but is playing at an extraordinary level. Or he really, and I'm not just saying this. I'm a Laker fan because I am not a LeBron fan. I admire his greatness, but I have never been from the carpetbagger school, where it's you know, uh, chase trophy will travel, at which he did originally when he left, and then when he left again. Um, but there's there's no disputing he is a phenomenal athlete. Of course. And one of the handful of greatest players in the history of the sport. What Tom Brady did is off the charts. I still don't think Tom Brady is the greatest thrower of the football I've ever seen. I may not even think he's the greatest quarterback that I've ever seen. Let, let me but guess. He, is, let me guess. He, is the, he is the Bill Russell of quarterbacks. Let me guess. 
Marino is the first answer for you. And then the second would be Otto, Johnny, or Joe. <laughs> you get the show pretty good, David. That's it. That's why we're named what we're named. Oh, I had a feeling. Glenn, we, we always get those old school guys like Al. They always, always say it's Otto Graham or Johnny or somehow they throw in Terry in that conversation. Okay, I will, I will say I'll that. I'll tell you what, he's yeah. coming around on somebody that just happened to win another Super Bowl this past, this past go around. Slowly but surely. Well, guys, but here's, the, here's the thing. Can, can, we, can, we, can we put him? Can we really just, just, him let, just let me answer in yeah. saying that I've never seen a better thrower of the football than Dan Marino. Right. And I'll leave it at that. Fair enough. Not the best quarterback, but I've never right. seen a better thrower of the football than Dan Marino. That's fair. Now, now listen, now we all know he peaked in the second year. <laughs> I mean, you guys know that's the truth. I'm not saying he wasn't an all-time great quarterback. But his, team, just, his team peaked in the second year. Well, I mean, Marino that was, had the, best, that was the best team. That was the best team he was ever on. But, it, but it, you know, once we started comparing eras and right. you know, different sets of rules, I got in a big fight tonight because I got pissed off at uh, the angry young man on uh, Mad Dog Radio. Who's uh, Who else? Who, who's, who's always mad at everybody? There's a lot of angry radio hosts on, on uh, any every kind of platform. He was sitting in for the great Steve Torrey tonight, Lance Meadow. Okay, he came on with a monologue where, you know, he he was basically talking about Caitlin Clark and, you know, who's a fabulous fabulous player. Amazing. And you know she's probably going to break Pete Maravich's record as the all-time leading NCAA scorer. That that's a lock. That's a lock, Al. So he, to me. His attitude was, it, it sounded like he was belittling what she was doing because, you know, she did it in four years and there's a three-point rule. And I, I understand, you know, I saw Pete Maravich. Pete Maravich is the greatest scorer in the history of men's college basketball. And believe me, when I tell you guys, there is no one that is even close, not just in terms of the numbers, in terms of the ability. He was the most extraordinary college player. Not the greatest, but he was the most extraordinary college player and scorer I have ever seen. And the numbers don't lie. But my, my point was, and he was saying you can't compare. He, he, the attitude of his monologue was like he was belittling what she was doing because people were comparing her to him. And I just didn't, and I, he, he he just didn't sound like it was for me. It wasn't polite enough. Who's by, oh, the, way, oh, by the way? And, and I, I mean, it's no disrespect. And I'm, 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 this isn't stick. I'm not trying to have a radio beef or anything like that. I know Lance knows his football. What, what, what makes him so qualified to compare and contrast basketball players? What makes Lance Meadows so qualified? Look, he's always pissed about something. He's I'm always angry about something. I'm and he, he's angry that they're call, that they're going to call her. Refer to her you know, that she's breaking Pete Maravich's record. Well, you know how no, dare you? No. He's, she's doing it in four years, right. and she she's got the three point rule. Well, you know, Lance, I, I understand, and I don't disagree, but you know, because you know, what Pete Maravich did was magnificent. There's never going to be like him. I saw him. You didn't. And he says, "Oh, whoa, let's stop the presses." You saw him. I mean, that's not got nothing to do with it. He comes off like you're 
you, you sound like if you're not trying to. And we got no shouting match. He finally hung up. I mean, that's fine. Well, wait, 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 wait. I'm listen. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I mean, Al, I, I'm, I'm sorry you had that back and forth with him. I, I know he's talented. There's a reason why he's hosting. I'm not trying to put the guy down. I, I'm curious. I'm, I'm asking a question. What makes Lance Meadow qualified enough to put down Caitlin Clark? I'm, I'm curious. Well, he's saying that he wasn't. Okay. And I took it that he was because the, the, the way to do it is to simply say, look, she is an incredible player. She's going to break Pete Maravich's record for the most points ever scored in NCAA Division I history, men or women. She's a wonderful player. But let's remember, obviously, it's a different game. It's a different era. She's doing it in four years with the three-point rule. It's a much different game now. She averages 30-some-odd. Maravich averages 44 a game. So you really can't compare the two. Uh, but what she's doing is fabulous and is great for the game. But no one can compare it to what Pete Maravich did. And and that's a respectful way to do it. He made it sound like, you know, how dare you? you know, how dare you even refer to her as the leading scorer in the history because you know, she's doing it with the three-point rule and she's doing it for Well, we know that. You know, and I said to him, you know, nobody bitches about Steph Curry. By you know going by everybody with points with a ton of threes, <laughs> nobody nobody rips him to shreds, you know, and, and and nobody like disrespects him. But it just sounds like you know nobody says, well, you can't compare Steph Curry to Jerry West. Why don't you say that? Right. But you don't do that. Right. It, it, I just didn't like the way it came off. He came on with like a chip on his shoulder about you know how dare you mention her in the same breath as Pete Maravich. And I understand almost from an old report standpoint how you can have that approach, but the way she's doing it, I mean, she handles, her, she handles herself with great grace and style and class. And she's got a chip on her shoulder, which I dig also. And she's doing what she's doing is great for the game. So I, I just didn't like the way it came off, especially when it's happening. You well, know, I'll tell you he, what, Al, he, but I'll tell you this much. He knows what he's doing because he certainly got you to react. He likes to go, everybody likes to go to one extreme or the other where what we can be doing and actually what I was happy to see Iowa did when Caitlin Clark broke Lynette Woodard's record, even though it wasn't as recognized as her being the all time leading scorer for division one women's college basketball because Kansas wasn't recognized back in the eighties is she brought it up. Coach Bluter brought it up after the game. Like we can have these records broken take a second as well to acknowledge the other records that were broken and how they were broken. Like when Kareem record gets thrown up with LeBron's, somebody could briefly mention, Oh yes. And he also had to play four years of college basketball before he came to the league. Just a brief mention of it. You don't have to go off on a tangent or stand on a soapbox, but it's interesting to just bring forth what's happened in the history books to let these new fans know what's happening. We got to let you get out of here, Shep, but I want to let people know how they can hear you on CBS, where they can find you on Mad Dog. Give a little shout out for yourself, where you're at now, where people can listen to you this week and moving on. I appreciate that, uh, John and Al. So I host every single weekend on CBS Sports Radio, Rain or Shine. Uh, my show is The Good Shepherd. It's across uh, North America, 300 affiliates, and you can always get us on the Odyssey app. I also host on SiriusXM NBA Radio. Al is familiar with my work. Lund, I know you are familiar with my work. And uh, obviously, I'm friends with you guys. It's great to chop uh, you know, sports up with you. Great to get both of your perspectives. And uh, you know, have me on any time, fellas. I enjoyed it. And thank you for having me. Shep, before you run, not a, not a, you know, a, a prediction of 
who's going to win the title. Just yeah. at least give us your NBA Finals prediction. Nuggets, Celtics. There you go. Appreciate you, Shep. We'll have you on soon. Champs against the best in the East. Shep, thanks for taking the time. We really appreciate it. My pleasure, Al. Thank you, Lon. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. There he is. Folks, that was David Shepard, who is, uh, as we said at the beginning of the show, uh, not just uh, a terrific NBA aficionado, but a great fan, uh, has a great passion for the game. And a wonderful historian uh, when it comes to uh, you know, somebody who is more of the new report uh, era versus the old report, but really has a great perspective on the history of the game. And great having him with us. And make sure you listen to his show because you will learn something for sure. And uh, great passion. You know, I got to sit down with him a few weeks ago when they invited me down to do uh, some uh, – something little special for Sirius XM uh, 86 and the radio. And we sat down for about 15 minutes and did a little interview and it was a lot of fun. Uh, he's a very good guy and he's incredibly knowledgeable. And like I said, as John knows, and you guys know from listening to us, the passion that we have, that's more than half the battle. That's a good chunk of it. When you got great passion, the rest of it just flows. Plain and simple. Bully hours too for, his programs usually on the weekends on CBS sports radio, he's usually doing like two to 6 AM shows Eastern time. So he's the truck driver late night, have a couple drinks in your system and listen to some sports talk radio and, and get some great takes and great questions, great topics. He's always got an incredible mind for how you can drive a conversation instead of just keeping it at one point or another. So it was a pleasure yeah, talking a very, to him about that. Stuff. He's a very, th- he's a very thought provoking guy. Very quick-witted. So, folks, make sure you listen and pick up the phone and give them a call. I don't know CBS's number or uh, NBA radios, but you can find it on your old Twitter machine. Easy to find, especially once he's on. Uh, he'll be tweeting about that. So we'll chat with him probably a couple more times before the NBA finals come and what will seemingly be several weather seasons from now because this NBA season runs quite long. Although once the all-star break happens, you can get a little bit more excitable that we're getting closer and closer to the end, but still miles to go before we sleep, as they say. As we mentioned, though, to start the show, and we touched on it briefly, nice little LeBron James carrying the Lakers performance in the fourth quarter to beat the Clippers in their last, I believe, go-round in the shared arena. Quite the way to go out. Not a surprise. I mean, how fitting for the Clippers to go out that way. (laughs) Blowing a big lead. The only thing missing was Doc Rivers being on the sidelines for it. It was poor Tyron Lue. He had to come out and apologize after the game, of course. But vintage LeBron, although he hadn't had a performance like that three-point-wise in four or five years, something along those lines, though it seemed like it was old hat, him just getting hot and being able to take over a team like that. It was a chef's kiss to end that I would say rivalry, but the other team has to win important games for that to actually be the case. Regular season wise, you've got the Lakers number of late. Yes. But the banners that they have to throw black curtains over a little bit. They did did win the finale of the hallway series. That's it. uh, Three out of four this year for the first time in forever. But again, in terms of what we were talking about, what I got in the big fight with uh, Lance Meadow tonight in terms of, but this is another example of how the game has changed. You know, LeBron is, and this is something you never saw Michael Jordan do. 
this is a six eight guy basically pulling up at times from thirty five feet. How do you guard that? Because he's not six two. He's not six three. You got you gotta put how do you gonna stop a guy who's six foot eight shooting from thirty five feet? You know, he's walking the ball up the court. Um, this the game has changed so much. You know, could Michael Jordan have done that? Of course he could have. You know, if he had practiced shooting 35 footers on a regular basis. Uh, but you know, he didn't. That's not the way the game was played back then. Could Magic have done it? Probably. Could Jerry West have done it? Or Oscar Robertson or all those other greats? You know, we know Steph Curry can. And Steph Curry is the one who is Bob Ryan has said so many times is basically responsible for the ruination of the game, but not his fault. And you can strike back so quickly with the three-pointer. And last night, you know, it wasn't just that. Because remember, the final score of this game was 116-112. The Clippers scored 96 points in three quarters. That's 92. Excuse me, that's 96 divided by three. You can do the math. That's 32 points a quarter. It wasn't just that LeBron scored 19 points. They held the Clippers to 16 points. Yeah, there was a defensive onslaught where they seemingly had 10 fast break points in a row off steals. It was was like a clinic. And seemingly had 10 defenders. They were in the passing lane. It was a crazy couple minutes. They got every, as they like to say, 50-50 ball. They won the rebounding, uh, you know, war which they have not done for a series of games shockingly again they barely i believe last night against the suns it was the lowest amount of free throws they've taken since lebron's been a laker and i think last night which was eight and i think last night was either eight or ten yeah so for some reason they are not getting to the foul line suddenly when they are one of the leading teams if not the leading team in the league getting to the free throw um, and I can't, I really have an explanation for that, but uh, not just LeBron, Hashimura, Russell shot the ball very well from three last night. When the Lakers can make some threes, they can, I'm not going to say beat anybody in a series, but they can compete with anybody because that's obviously been uh, really their Achilles heel, no pun intended, these last few years. And last night in the second half, is the, I think they were only three for 16 in the first half. Uh, last night, they made a bunch from not just LeBron, everybody else uh, in the third, and especially the fourth quarter, and got a huge win. Uh, can they follow it up tonight against the hideous Washington Wizards? I hope so. And if they can do that, Saturday will be a real litmus test because Denver, who I think they have lost, what, seven or eight straight to, including the four straight two uh, in the conference finals last year, they come a call and uh, on Saturday night, which if the Lakers can get a win tonight, they can kind of regain some of that momentum. I really thought they lost with the break. They went into the break playing very well, and I think the break really hurt them. They kind of came out flat as a pancake. Yeah, since the break, LeBron has shot seven total free throws, and the team as well is at a historic low for the three games since. So hopefully that's something that will turn around despite the pundits, of course, saying the Lakers get all the calls and spend the whole game at the free throw line. Well, it hasn't been the case. I don't know who got in their ear while they were not watching Sunday's all-star game performance, but somebody said something and hopefully it'll switch around and get back to just medium. That's all we're asking for. 
two things before we get out of here that happened previous to us last speaking. And one I'm excited to get your thoughts about because we share different sides of fandom for it. <laughs> Saturday in college basketball, a little kerfluffle on the court happened at Wake Forest. The Demon Deacons upset the Duke Blue Devils despite being favored in the game. The fans stormed the floor, understandably so. Kyle Filipowski, Duke star, a little lax maybe in getting off Thank the court you. in a timely Thank fashion. You. The stampede kinda, of kinda, students that you haven't kinda. seen since the Lion King and the Wildebeest came after Simba reached him before he could get off the floor. A little bang knee and screwed up knee, and the managers had to come out and save him from the scrum. Kind of throw, kind of throwing his leg at a fan. A little bit, a little bit. <laughs> you saw it. I'm glad you saw it. A little bit, which yeah. I can't blame him for. <laughs> so everybody's had an opinion on this incident. I've tried to take off my Duke colored glasses and just think of it as another player. Cause the two biggest instances of uproar for this have come from Caitlin Clark star of all of basketball. And now Kyle Filipowski, who may be a top 10, 15 player, he goes to Duke. So everybody's going to have an opinion on it. And 90% of it was, Oh, poor and Duke. we love Caitlin Clark. And what happened there was horrendous. But do we think, do we agree that she kind of maybe she also may have went a little bit to an area of floppage now, Down like a hundred dollar club. <laughs> what I am trying to portray is who am I to have an opinion on what to do when hundreds of people are running at you full speed? The closest I've come to that is probably a 5k race, maybe, or if you're at a concert and you get a little bit too close to the mosh, but like, you're just not in a situation in life where you're supposed safe on your playing surface. And all of a sudden people are coming onto it that you didn't expect to happen. You have to show great restraint and just, it's never happened to me competing. And it's, it's in one but, of your lowest moments cause you've just but, lost, but, but I, I've competed at the high school level and know what it's like to be on the court when you lose a game that you're not just, you didn't just lose, but you're incredibly disappointed because it was a rival or it was a close game. And, you know, I was angry. Sure. You know, I wasn't ready to go shake anybody's hand. I, I was pissed. And I couldn't even envision how I would have reacted if, you know, a fan came out and screamed something in my face. So it, it takes massive restraint on the part of players and coaches because, you know, a lot of these kids are running out there and, and some of them are just, you know, being a pain in being smart asses or being a pain in the You neck can only imagine and, what they're and, saying. And, and a lot of them, you know, some of them may have obviously had too much to drink um, and are being very bold because, you know, they're on their court and you know, it's their feeling of invincible and their time to shine, so to speak. But the point is there are measures that can be taken. You know, I, I think this, oh, it's got to be banned. I love Jay Billis, but, you know, give them all citations and arrest them. You know, as I said to the great Steve Torrey, you know, they're not storming the Capitol. All right? They're not looking to overthrow the government. There are measures that can be taken to control this. And as for Duke fans, you know, going ballistic, you know, and again, it's, I don't want to say it's apples and oranges, but take a look at the sea of humanity that came out onto your football field after you beat Clemson. All right? That looked like, 
all right, you know, literally a migration of tens of thousands onto uh, onto the field. So I don't want to make it sound like, you know, this holier-than-thou Duke scenario. Just look back to the fall. And again, it's football players that are out there with pads on, and they're big, strong guys, so they're not as defenseless as about you know as, as basketball players. They're small guys, but you know they're in shorts and a jersey. So, a different story. But the point is, there are measures that can be taken to adequately safeguard against this. One, let, let, let's think about this. This is not something you have to guard against every home game that you play in. Correct. Correct. Well, it's, it's so expensive. I, you know, you know, maybe there's you know three or four times a year. Let's just take the ACC. You know, when you've got Duke coming in or Carolina coming in, there's two teams, maybe, right? Or maybe Virginia coming in, and you know, not that you're one of those other teams and you're at home, but you know, you're Wake Forest. You're uh, if Miami fans are rabid enough. If, and Miami's pretty good, so would they storm? But you know, you know, Florida State, um, you know, Wake, as we've just seen, right? Um, you know, BC. In, in the rare instances where there would be the possibility of it happening, maybe two, three times a year, you take the adequate measures, you beef up the security, and then you make an announcement all week long and during the week and pregame halftime, whatever the case may be. Remember, just reminding you in terms of there will be no one allowed on the court until the players have left the court. They must be off the court and you will be allowed to go on the court by the authorities and only then will you go on the court and if you try and get on the court you will be subject to penalties and make sure they're warned make sure there's the proper security and in those instances and and this is literally in general we don't need until you're in the postseason your postseason tournament the big tournament when you're on pretty much always a neutral site, a neutral court. We don't need the post-game handshakes in the regular season. Get the guys off the court. These guys play each other two, three times a year. They know each other from AAU. They grew up together. They traveled and played against each other. All they know each other. All right. They, they don't need to shake hands and go through go through the handshake line after the game. Enough with that. Get them off the court. You know, especially the road team. Home team wants to stay out. Get the road team. Get the road team off the court and into the locker room. These type of instances. Don't further subject them to risk. Hold the crowd back. They're off the court. Let them rip. I am pro court storming. I think it's awesome. I think in the right environment, it's a perfect way to celebrate your team's victory. And what makes college athletics so special is you're jumping around on the court with players that might be in your chemistry 101 class. Or your dorm. Or in your dorm. You're friends with these dudes. It's so cool to have that moment. And you're going to remember it. And not only are you going to remember it, the school showcases and highlights it. 
you, you might you might actually get a hug. Yeah. From one of your guys. You get a little selfie because that's also another reason why people want to be on the court uh, first with their phones. Make sure everybody knows they were first. That, that part that part drives me it's nuts. Sickening. Is that is, is watching I mean, there isn't a kid running out there. I asked my son, but I'm like, Justin, I, I, I don't get it. Everybody's got the phone held up. What, what are they? Are they taking a picture of themselves? Are they taking a picture of the crowd? Well, I mean, what are you doing running out there one hand up in the air with your phone? What, what is the purpose of that? You're getting a blurry, jumping up and down, out of focus, 20-second video instead of just enjoying the moment. It's an unbelievable moment that schools celebrate in their recruiting videos, in their hype montages, in their posters, in the hallways. When you're walking to the coach's office. My phone would be in my back pocket and I'd be jumping up and down, waving my arms, looking to hug one of my buddies or my girlfriend, or if I knew one or two of the players. Yeah. You'll find them, give them a huge hug. All right. Yeah, I don't give give a rat's ass about my phone being up, taking pictures or anything. It's it's the experience that you want to experience. Did you ever get to storm the court? At- no, because we were we had when I was in Syracuse, we had the longest home court winning streak in the country. Didn't need to. <laughs> there was we no never, court stormings, right? We, we never lost. We never lost. Yeah. We were always favored. The closest thing we came to probably being, I don't want to say an underdog, but uh, is my j- sophomore year. I was a year behind, man, let's see, Magic won it. Magic's sophomore year was 78-79, right? Right. That was his sophomore year when he won it. So his freshman year, which was my, they won it in 78-79. They came in his freshman year which was 77, 78, which was my soft. I was a year ahead of him. Uh, that was because I graduated in 80. Um, he was a sophomore in 70. Was that a two? Was that him? So I guess maybe it was my junior year. So 77, 78 was my... Sophomore year, my sophomore year, his freshman year, they came into the carrier dome for the carrier classic and we beat them. And that's the team that won the national title the next year with Greg Kelser uh, and Jay Vincent. Uh, he was the MVP of the tournament, even though we won the tournament, he was the MVP of the tournament. And then the next year or two years thereafter, I don't remember which, uh, Jim Valvano brought Ione in with Jeff Ruland and we beat them. Um, we did not lose my four years at Syracuse at home until that fateful final game in, the, in Manly Field. That was the Georgetown. Uh, so we never really had any the storm over. We were right. the favorites. We were expected to win. As yep. a Duke fan, similarly expected to win. Being a Duke fan, you expect more often than not that your losses on a good year will result in court storming. So this is nothing new to see. As a fan of court storming, even without being a Duke fan, it was such a failure from the Wake Forest administration and the security team to have that happen. I mean, kids were on the court before the buzzer even sounded, and it's a stampede. Even 
you know, I get tired of hearing him sometimes. Uh, but be, even the old coach from Virginia Tech, uh, you know, Seth Greenberg talked about when he was coaching at Virginia Tech and they prepped all week for the potential of the upset and they were prepared and the administration was prepared and security was prepared and everybody, you know, had it in their mind to deal with the possibility of one, the upset and two, that there would be a court stormy and that it would be properly handled as John Shire spoke about the way it was handled in Arkansas earlier in the year when the Razorbacks upset Duke and in Fayetteville, they were prepared and it was handled properly and nobody was you know, in harm's way and it was controlled. And you know, the players were you know, out of harm's way. You've got to allow the players to get out of harm's way. And it, you, know, you can't, it's hard to put it on the coaches where you say to the coach, you want the coaches to be able to say, okay, look, if we lose, because you never want to put in the possibility that we're going to lose. No. And you shouldn't have to, you shouldn't have to take your starters out of a game because you're fearful that they're going to get injured or there's a risk of injury. If you lose the game, you're still trying to win at that point. Now, if you're down 10, I can maybe understand it but the game is still technically within reach. You need a miracle and a half for it to happen, but taking your starters out isn't the answer, nor is the answer. There's two versions of this argument I can't understand. One of them is that, well, what can you do from some people? There's plenty that you can do. I understand if hundreds of students are going to stampede all at once that it's going to be troublesome, but you have to at least try. As you're mentioning, get more security, Put something up on the scoreboard. My idea is to have like a New Year's Eve countdown clock. Everybody in the stadium is aware. They've, they've had emails all throughout the week to the students. This is our policy for storming the floor. They've put it on the scoreboard. This is our policy for storming the floor. You have to let the players get off the floor. Put up a 10-second scoreboard on the big clock and start counting it down. The whole student section and body are going to count it down like it's New Year's Eve and the ball's dropping. Ten, nine. Meanwhile, they've got the rope out. The team's getting led away to whatever part of the arena they want to get them out. Sometimes they don't even go to the normal walkthrough for the locker room. There's another entrance and exit way to get out. While that's all happening, the countdown's going. The clock hits zero. Everybody goes free to storm and run, and everybody is already off the floor and you have nothing to worry about. There's things that you can do that can be set in place to greatly help your chances. Including the coach. Including the coach. Including the coach. Because there's teams, like, for example, Clemson football, every home game, win or lose, they come onto the the field. Mm -hmm. Tiger, Proud, or Paw, or whatever they call it. Win or lose, the students go onto the field. Notre Dame, win or lose, students are onto the field. Texas Tech, uh, Big 12 example. They sing the alma mater. When that's done with, everybody comes onto the court. Places do this, and they do it well. Kansas State last year, this season, they upset Kansas at home. Jerome Tang said last year when they stormed the court, this is it, because we're expected to do this now. You had your fun. If we do it again, no more. 
So while the clock is winding down, what are the assistant coaches doing? What do they have on the PA? Don't storm the court. Stay back. We'll come to you. They win the game. The students stay in the stands. The players run to the student section with Jerome Tang. They sing Ema and everything, and it's great. Players, coaches, schools know how to do this correctly. It was a sin what happened at Wake Forest. That doesn't mean that I agree with these coaches that have come on these soapboxes. John Schreier included and said, when this has to stop, what are we doing? Easy. It doesn't have to stop. It just has to be fixed. The second argument is this people coming after Kyle Filipowski. Why didn't he get off the court faster? What is he doing? Complaining about this injury. Is he a sissy? He played on Wednesday, Al. Oh, what is the Duke medical staff? Miracle workers, they fixed his knee. Now, we didn't play college basketball, but as people and as athletes in the past, you and I both know what it is to twist or bang a knee against somebody. For that initial couple minutes, you don't know what's going on sometimes. You want to have your leg amputated. This guy gets his leg twisted. His managers have to get him out of the way. He's limping and it looks bad. Why people immediately jump and former players having the opinion of, well, it's up to him to get off the court faster and it's up to the coaches he, to get I him off the game. I think he did himself any favors when he said it was, he thought it was intentional because right, immediately thereafter that night, or the next day he said, you know, he, th- he thought it was, you know, someone you know, intent, intent to injure that they, they intentionally tried you know, to take him out or to hurt him. And I don't think that was the case in any way, shape, or form. The initial guys, contact, guys, I think, was completely accidental. He, he kind of stuck his leg out a little bit. He did. The kid ran into him. You know, there's nobody out there trying to hurt a guy who's six foot nine or six foot ten. There were a couple um, people that came behind. One guy swiped at his back, and I'm sure he got bumped a couple other times. Those right. other bumps, I again, I don't think were purposeful. Hey, man, now were people probably yelling stuff on the way by? No question. Of course. Of course. And it, as I said before, kudos to him for the restraint, you know, because it's, it's not hard to imagine somebody taking a swing, especially if they're losing a close game, um, you know, in a hostile environment and you're upset and you got all these people coming at you. It doesn't matter that you're bigger than all of them. What matters is I'm pissed. We lost a tough one. and you know, I, I can't how do I get the hell out of here. And people coming in from 18,000 different directions. And again, you got to get the guys off the court. That is rule one. Rule one is you must get them off the court safely. Then, you know, let the kids go crazy. But you got to go crazy. You know, let the kids have their fun but you must create an environment where the players are given the opportunity to get off the court. The managers shouldn't beat your security team to the players. That's your number one priority. Number one is the health and safety of the players. Without a doubt. We're too smart not to figure this out. Okay? It's not rocket science. You know, people don't have to be threatened with, you know, Anybody who storms the court gets arrested. No offense to Jay Bellis. Incredibly bright guy. Respect and, and, and admired so much of what he's said and done. 
over the years, I wish he was, if he, he should be the head of the NCAA. Peldon probably hates the NCAA. Yeah. <laughs> but the point is, uh, great for college basketball. If there's a commissioner of college basketball, it should be him. But the point is, I don't agree with this notion of, you know. That's preposterous. Seth Greenberg saying schools should get fined at the start $100,000. So some like Mountain West school that just upset their rival is going to be hundred thousand. Thought to close the program down. Let's relax. Have yes. something in place, but you don't. You yes. don't have to go. Yes. hundred grand for the well, pocket the money for them. Get it for ten bucks. They'll give you that at the door if you smile at them right. Exactly. You don't have to go above and beyond and and go to the extreme for this. Just have a little bit of logic. Keep the fun involved, but view the team, what the, the other team. schools have done with this. The team manager gets ten hundred grand in NIL money, doesn't it? <laughs> Duke managers should have got it for putting their lives on the line. It can be fixed. I hope it is. But for Absolutely. especially former players to have this argument and get on their soapbox to blame Kyle Filipowski for not getting out of the way fast enough, to use analogies like if you're in your car and you get to an intersection and you see somebody run a red light, are you going to keep driving into the intersection and get hit? What are we fucking talking about? He shouldn't have to have that be at the forefront of his mind. How do I survive the next 10 seconds? I agree that he himself could have pulled a Tyrese Proctor and got off the court a little bit faster, but I can understand where his mindset at is shit. We just lost this game. And then Holy, all these people now what? And him thinking, well, they're not going to touch me. I'll just be able to walk off the floor. And unfortunately you get clipped and the rest is history, but the blame shouldn't be on Kyle Filipowski. The blame for that is on wake forest. And the hope is that this doesn't go to the extreme and court storming is banned completely, but we just look at the places that have found success with it and follow their lead. Quite simple. It's not, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. And again, as we said at the outset of this, we're talking about very, very limited opportunities in a season for teams to do this. We're not talking about, you know, worrying about it for every game. Although with some teams beating anybody, <laughs> you know, for it to, I guess if Missouri wins a game this year, they may want to court true. storm the court. <laughs> it doesn't matter who they beat. But there was the there was one team left in college basketball that hadn't won a game a couple days ago, and they're like gaggle of ten or twenty fans stormed the floor. Yes, that's what I like to see. Absolutely. Hopefully it all gets resolved, but for people clowning at some 20 year old, relax. Will you please Duke aside? The last thing is, which is hard for you to put aside. It is. The last thing for you is this sentence or sentences. We've talked ad nauseum about the 12 team playoff, which has been in our, lexicon for probably two years now will finally be put into practice this upcoming college football season. However, there's already chatter and movement to move from 12 teams to 14 teams before we've even had 12. We now want to consider 14 
And how would the math work for 14? What conferences do you think would benefit the most from moving to a 14 playoff? What two conferences specifically might want to make or bend the rules to make sure they're most beneficial? Maybe the Big Ten and the SEC? Eh. What they're looking for, if it were to go to 14, guaranteed top two seeds in the college football playoff for their champions beginning in 2026, which is seemingly a fallback after asking for four automatic qualifiers. The big 10 and the sec would have combined for 16 of 20 spots in top two in history of college football playoff in the current lineup. What's being proposed now is basically like a, Three, three, and we'll give you other people two, two. SEC three, Big Ten three, ACC two, Big 12 two, should the ACC survive, of course, asterisks, and then fill in as it may, they'll figure out the back end of that. And, and, I, and I guess you'd have, with 14, you would have, what, two buys? Two buys. Right? And then you have... Six games. Yep. For six winners, uh, which gives you a field of eight, and then off you go in your quarterfinals. Here, here is what I did not realize, and I was thrilled when I found out um, what the final mechanism w- was for the new system. And I don't want to get into fourteen yet because you know, there's no need to get into it um, because eventually we know it's going to happen. Just a question of when. But uh, I had no idea that all of the big six bowls were integrated, which I was absolutely thrilled to hear, you know, where it's the first four, then the next two for the semis. So all of the big six bowls, the Rose, the Sugar, the Orange, the Fiesta, the Cotton, and the Peach will all be in the the mix uh, for you know, the six games, uh, which I think is terrific. Absolutely terrific. Uh, where we've got, uh, you know, two are going to be, uh, the semis and four are going to be, uh, the quarters, the first round are going to be, uh, you know, in the home field, which I'm not necessarily crazy about, but I can live with it because we do have all of the big six involved, uh, which I think is going to, is going to be terrific because I love the bowl games. And part of the biggest problem in my mind with, I don't say the erosion because college football is incredibly popular and we love it and it's huge, but the, the erosion of the bowl games is to me been a pock on college football. And now at least the big six will have massive implications, uh, which I'm very excited about. The only thing as a college football fan that doesn't have a dog in any fight, aside from where I'm working professionally would be is that water always finds its level. And if you are writing in stone, three, three, two, two for the four remaining power five conferences, what happens when there might be a year where the ACC? Well, why why comes do you back have to write to that? Anything? Why do you have to write that in stone? I agree. 
why can't it be something that evolves over time? You're going to go to 14, you're going to create more opportunities, obviously, but there's two super duper conferences to get more teams. But if they don't deserve to get in, you can't, you can't earmark a certain number of teams from the conferences to be preordained. I mean, you have 68 teams in the, in the NCAA tournament. You don't do that in the NCAA tournament. Right. The amount of teams from the conferences are not preordained other than conference champions. So you cannot do that. They may do it, but in my mind, you can't do that. that that's that, that's bullshit. That's what I mean. And, what? and I think that's what the Big Ten and the SEC, for them, of course, why wouldn't they, will strive to I, do. Is, I have no, why can't I, we I, have I, this number always? What? Prove it. You have a chance to prove it. Prove it in your conference. If, you're, if you are that good and your teams play well enough and they're that high enough rated, and the committee thinks that they're that they're that good, then you'll get three teams. But if it's like this year, uh, you weren't going to get three teams because you didn't have three teams that were good enough. Maybe LSU sneaks in, maybe, but you know you had two that were good enough. I don't know if you could argue. I got, and where did LSU finish? They finished in the South Twelve. I don't believe so. There so. you go. But, but regardless, uh, they, they finished in the top 14. <laughs> but, the, but, but and, and now the Big Ten, I've lost track. How many is the Big Ten going to have? 18? 18. So there's a good chance you're going to get three. You know, also, why would you want to preordain the number? Why would you want to cap them? Right. You may have four or five, you may have four or five of the best teams in the country. It could turn out to be like the NCAA tournament. You know, preordained amounts. Your conference champs, yeah, you're in. And all the chips fall where they may the rest of the way. It's what a tournament is about. Right. I agree with you. I hope it's more. There aren't any other tournaments in any sport where a conference gets a preordained number of teams no. into the NCAA tournament automatically. Fuck that. And in some of the better viewed or looked at playoff systems or regular season systems, it fluctuates based on how good you are. Isn't that the way it's supposed to be? You're awful. You're not even in this league anymore. We're demoting your ass. You want to talk about getting into the postseason? You're barely even staying in our league. You're playing just to stay in the league, not getting to the postseason. Setting in stone, we want X number of teams no matter what. Just doesn't feel right to me. I hope that's not the way it goes, but unfortunately, money talks. We know which two conferences hold that court and the cable rights, etc., I'm just flabbergasted that we're talking about 14 before we've even seen 12 take the field. That's all. I, I think I think that it really was an insult and very disrespectful and unwise from a big picture point of view with what's gone on with the demise of the Pac-12 for them to start making that kind of noise before we've even seen one 12 team tournament. Right. And from the two conferences that you couldn't trust with a 39 and a half foot pole, if you're not under their umbrella. Absolutely. Greg Sankey's not keeping his eyes open at night for your circumstances. He only cares about his conference as he, he should. Does a a, he does a hell of a job for the SEC. Sure. He's great for them, but for but, the whole of college football, keep right. one eye open, man. Exactly. It's kind of like, you know, a certain former president. 
what is it? Life imitates art. There you go. Always about me. Always about me. Not about the greater good. Um, and I'm look, I, I was not a huge fan of expanding to 12, but the way they've structured, as I said, I'm fired up for, for the big six ball games, having four of them be the quarters and the other two being the semis, I just wish somehow, some way, the Rose Bowl could be the national title game every year. Uh, but it can't. I understand that Rose Bowl has got to be on New Year's Day or the 31st, depending on when when New Year's falls, whatever the case may be. Um, or, or the second, depending on when New Year's falls, if it's an NFL Sunday. But the point is, um, I, I grew up with the bowl camps. I grew up with... Uh, the big really four, which was you know, rose, sugar, orange, cotton. Those were the big four. Uh, the gator was there. The peach was there. Then the fiesta came along and kind of became the fifth. And slowly but surely, the peach has snuck its way into the six hole. Uh, maybe it's because you know it's out of Atlanta, whatever the case may be. But the point is, I, I love having the big six being involved uh in the playoff every year so they all get a cut of it which is cool and they make more they the bowl games instead of you know one or two mattering now or two mattering now we've got six of them that matter i think it's great let's hope we could get the there in one piece i don't know what they'll do with the rest of them because <laughs> they turned into a nightmare yep. where guys don't want to play guys don't want to go uh i don't know who who goes to watch them but the point is, uh, somehow, some way, we have to figure out how to get interest promoted in the rest of these bowl games you know, with an impetus for guys to play, and you know, that really hurts them. So, because they're they're supposed to be, you know, a privilege to go and play these things. Yeah, we have too many. But I'd love to see us cut it to maybe you know twenty, all told, instead of how many we got now. What do we got now? Thirty-five, forty. Whatever the case, we're just too many. It needs to be more of a privilege. There's no off season in college football anymore, but for some of this stuff, just let it breathe for a second. Let's see what we got before we try to fix it. That's Can all. Can we take asking. an overview? Can we look at the big picture and get some results before we try and change it? Can we maybe so think about just enjoying the sport for what it is instead of the monetary values for the TV parts, the team parts, the school parts. No. Let it, let, it, let, let it breathe. Let it breathe. See, see how this works. Get some feedback. Let's see some ratings. You know, let's see how the kids handle the multiplicity of games. Right. Fans, viewership, etc. Injuries, injuries. We're one of the, one of the fears has always been we don't want these kids playing too many games. Yep. Not to mention their studies. Oh, their well, studies. <laughs> they're still student athletes. Well, Jesus, I, I said not to mention it. <laughs> Al, it's always a pleasure. We'll do it again next week, folks. For my part, the great John Tiny London, Mel Renato, and Kale from White Plants. Enjoy your sports weekend, everybody.
We'll be back 8 p.m. Eastern time here on Sports Radio America. You can listen at sportsradioamerica.com and interact with the show there as well or find us on the TuneIn app by searching for Sports Radio America. You can also follow John Lund under the same handle on Twitter at London Bridge. Thanks again for listening.